Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program entitled Impact of an Aging U.S. Population on Retinal Diseases. My name is Jeff Dunn, and I will be hosting today's session. I am a pharmacist by training and am the chief clinical officer for a for CBG, which is a PBM based in Salt Lake City. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Impact Education LLC, and it is designated for one half contact hour of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and we would very much like to thank them for their support. At the conclusion of today's program, you will be able to complete an evaluation which must be submitted in order to receive credit. There will be a complete evaluation button within the navigation in the activity. And once you complete your evaluation, you must click claim credit to download your certificate and pharmacist, then you can submit your credit to the CPE monitor. I am joined today by Dr. Garvin Davis, an ophthalmology, retina, and vitreous disease specialist at Houston Methodist Eye Associates to discuss the impact of an aging U.S. population on retinal diseases. Dr. Davis, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Dunn. It's great to be here. Fantastic. I was actually looking forward to speaking with you today because uh, we have been looking at some data from the NIH National Eye Institute, and their data estimates an annual cost over $130 billion for vision loss in the United States, and that over 15 million Americans are expected to have either age-related macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy by the year 2030. These are massive numbers, and my payer colleagues uh, will need to start thinking about how to manage these retinal diseases, as Medicare is already the largest payer of medical expenses for eye diseases in the country. And I think if you look at Medicare, three of the drugs used in this area are top 10 drugs. So very large category and going to grow over the next decade. So my first question for you, Dr. Davis, is can you tell us a little bit more about your background and then why is it important for the people who are listening today to understand the impact of an aging population on retinal diseases? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Those are really impressive numbers. So as I said, my name is Dr. Davis and I'm practice, I practice in Houston, Texas. And my background is I've been practicing for the last 22 years in a subspecialty called vitreoretinal surgery. I was on faculty at the University of Texas for and taught for about 18 years. Most recently, I've transitioned to Houston Methodist Eye Associates, where I head up the retina practice there. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, the major causes of blindness in the Western world are treated by vitreoretinal surgeons. And what's very interesting, well, two of the three, and what's very interesting is that when I started my training, some of these diseases we did not have good treatments for. We weren't really injecting eyes on a regular basis at all in 2002. Now, the most commonly done procedure in all of medicine are intraocular injections. And that's because the leading causes of decreased vision in the elderly and in aging populations, number one is age-related macular degeneration. Number two is glaucoma. And number three is diabetic retinopathy. And so 
the drugs that we're using now, in the past, if someone had really bad macular degeneration, we didn't really have a great treatment. Now we can preserve vision, prevent loss, and really help these patients. So as we all know, like vision is so critical and so important to everyday life. Like without being able to see well, you cannot drive, you can't get yourself to other appointments. There's lack of social engagement. Um, you can't continue to enjoy the things in life that you were doing before. And so it's very important to patients to maintain their vision. In fact, certain patients say that they'd rather not live than be blind. And, um, and that's just, you know, I disagree with that. Obviously we have patients that can do well with, you know, even though they don't see well, but it's just a, a testament to just how important vision is to our patients. The other thing that happens to everyone, it's almost like getting gray hair, is that everyone will develop cataracts over time. In, in places that are not in the Western world, where there's not quite as much access to healthcare, one of the leading causes of decreased vision is cataracts. Currently, though, in the U.S. and the Western world, we have a lot of specialists. And so, again, cataract surgery is one of the most, I think it's also the most commonly done surgical procedure in all of medicine because everyone develops cataracts and everyone has two eyes. So ophthalmologists are going to be very busy over the next few decades. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Even from a payer perspective, we spend a lot more money on medications for things that treat symptoms uh, and even cosmetic, if you will. So, uh, you know, again, I think it, we just need to realize that relatively speaking, these medications are not that expensive. And they, they do preserve vision, which is obviously crucial for functionality. It's just that the, the prevalence is so large and our population is living longer, which is a good thing. But uh, so this is a budget impact issue, but we do need to understand uh, the, the value of these medications. So thank oh, you absolutely. for that. Yeah, yeah, oh. please. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're constantly developing more and more um, different injections for the eye. Like I said, we went from zero to millions of injections a year, but now we're also trying to extend the treatment. And so one of the things, if we talk into the details of kind of how some of these treatments work, some of them require monthly injections. And, you know, the, one of our one of the things that we're completely trying to do as a, as a retinal specialty is try to extend these treatments, try to Maybe not have the patient injected every month, but every other month, every three months. The problem is when these newer agents come on, some of them or become available, FDA approved, some of them actually cost even more than the monthly injections with the thought being that, hey, we're delaying the patient doesn't have to come in as often. We're getting more of an impact. So the, and it takes more to develop these drugs. And so you know, some of these drugs cost even more than the ones that we that we inject monthly. Um, but I, I will say, if you ask any patient, you know, how much they will pay for their eyesight, it's almost infinite. Like one of the one of some of the things that we do is we have studies where we've asked patients, okay, you don't see well in your eye. So if we tell you you have 10 years to live, how many of those years would you give to have perfect vision? And it's amazing how many patients would give up years of, of their life, their rest of their lifespan, just to be able to see. And, you know, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I decided to do ophthalmology, because 
patients are very compliant. As you as you mentioned, yes, yeah, so we have all these drugs that treat different um, symptoms and different diseases. But if I tell someone, hey, you know, I'm seeing changes in your eye, the blurriness that you're seeing, if we don't fix this right away, if we don't get control over your diabetes and treat you with these medicines, you'll go blind. It's amazing how compliant the patients are because no one, I mean, everyone wants to see their grandkids or their great grandkids. And so um, if they don't have kids, they want to see their pets. So it's very important for our population. Well, there, there's a lot of great points in there. And I actually did want to ask you about adherence because, uh, and you also mentioned price. And we do have some biosimilars now mm -hmm. that either on both on and off label that are used in this area, which uh, further reduces the cost of these medications, but they are in the, for the agents that are dosed more frequently. So I did want to ask you about persistence and adherence. And I think from my perspective, from, you know, from a payer perspective, it's hard for us to even understand the adherence and persistence just because of things like treat and extend. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole, but how much of an, of a discussion or when you're discussing these things with patients, I mean, how much of it, you know, is, is centered around a cost versus convenience slash adherence uh, versus clinical? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And it varies by individual, obviously, as most things do. But in general, no one likes to have a needle stuck in their eye. Um, you know, it's always joke with patients. I say, hey, you know, I think when you were a kid, you must have made a lot of little promises. And then you said, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And then you have this like unrealistic trauma and this fear of getting an injection in the eye. But the reality is, that the injections, people vary in how much it bothers them. There's some patients, when we inject their eye, you know, they, they feel fine, no issues. Um, others, no matter what we do to numb the eye, they feel a little bit of discomfort and that bothers them. Uh, we have several different agents, as we talked about, the biosimilars. The, to the patient, really, I, I don't think price necessarily matters much to them. They really want the best if they can afford it, they want the best option that we have out there. But you're right with the on, with the advent of biosimilars and their new um, new agents hitting the market and becoming improved. It becomes this very complex, you know, conundrum of which drug is going to work the best for which patient. One of the things I think though is that certain drugs work better for certain patients, and so just like we have multiple drugs for cancer and we have multiple drugs to control you know diabetes and hypertension ultimately there's certain there's certain of our medications that work best for some patients and and we're trying to sort all that out to be quite honest right now we do a trial and um you know basically a trial and see uh, we'll try this medicine if it doesn't work we'll try another one if it doesn't work we'll try another one because they all act a little bit differently um however it is a process when it comes to compliance and where the patient is going to be adherent to it, like I said, I don't think price is as important for a couple of different reasons. One, a lot of the companies that manufacture these drugs have programs to help patients with their portion, either if they're private payers, or even if they have a little more trouble with Medicare and Medicaid, but a lot of these, uh, the big companies will establish programs for the patients to help them and provide access. 
But you also have to understand that when a patient comes in for an injection, where a lot of these patients are elderly, so usually they'll have some family member come with them or um, other people that, you know, to get them into the office. So that's a problem. And that leads to some problems with adherence. And as I talked about, the discomfort um, can also bother patients. So almost every patient wants us to figure out how we can decrease our, our injections. And so, um, yeah, it's a huge rabbit hole as to how do you do this? Um, we do have these treat and extend protocols. Some of the newer protocols are, you know, to load the patient. So give them three injections in a row and then wait for the fluid to come back. But as I tell patients, we have treatments, but we don't have cures. And a lot of times the patients want to be cured. And I just remind them that, look, your diabetes isn't cured. Your hypertension, you're treating with medications. Unfortunately, a lot of the times when we're treating diabetic retinopathy or age-related macular degeneration, we are treating and we're not curing. Um, another, one of the other things I think that we sometimes forget as payers, or payers may remember more than the doctors, a lot of doctors get focused in on their practice. Let's say, hey, you know, let's bring you in for an injection for your eyes. Forgetting that a diabetic patient may also be seeing their nephrologist and their endocrinologist and their podiatrist. And that's not even, you know, talking about a nutritionist or a dietitian. Um, there's a, patients have a number of visits and we're just one of them. So the better we get at extending these treatments, I think the better it will be for everyone. Um, but yeah, those are some of the concerns that, that, or things that I see that lead to patients maybe not adhering as, as much as they can, but it really, you know, it's patient specific. I have some patients that unfortunately I cannot extend their treatment. And so I have one patient I've injected every month for 13 years wow. and she comes every month. Uh, so, so you have a bunch of payers on, uh, on this call listening to us. Mm -hmm. uh, so is there anything you would like to say to them uh, in terms of coverage policies or access or just you know any anything around barriers that you may be experiencing uh, as you work with payers? Yeah, you know it's it's a complex problem that we're trying to solve. Um, the message that I have to payers is to it, it's hard to say, you know it's so every payer has their own way of doing things, and it's it's very complex because. Instead of just looking at the patient in front of me and saying, okay, you know, we're going to employ this strategy for this patient because there's some clinical factors that I think work best for this patient in providing individual care. What payers are doing now is they're each coming up with their own specific protocol. So my manager just emailed me today saying that, you know, the patient's insurance, I wanted to, you know, I've tried because these medicines cost different, different, um, because they have different prices, the payers want to use the least expensive one that's quote unquote the most effective. The problem is it's very difficult to know what that is and to know what that is for the individual patient sitting in front of you. So my manager emails me today and says, hey, you know, this patient has this specific insurance. And what they want you to do is you have to use a Vastin 
for three injections, one month apart. So three months of Avastin, you have to prove that doesn't work. If that doesn't work, then you have to go to a new biosimilar, which is, I forget what it, which one it was, but, um, and then you have to try that for three months. And now if that doesn't work, then after six months of these injections, you can then switch to the one that you like the best, which is, um, you know, again, I don't want to, you know, speak to any specific drugs in this neutral podcast, but, you know, again, one of the branded ones that has been proven, the most recent studies show that with this newer drug, it will be able, you know, that for many patients, we'll be able to extend them to Q4 four months. So instead of me having the ability to say, hey, look, I think that, you know, at least this particular patient doesn't want to come every month. They want to come every four months. Instead of putting them on a medicine that I think will work the best initially, I have to take all of these steps. And the problem is every step process is different for every payer. So I don't know what the solution is, to be quite honest, Jeff. I wish, you know, I don't necessarily want the payers to get together and say, well, we're all going to do this. But right now, there's so many different payers. And one payer will say, hey, this is my go-to drug. I want you to start with this. And then another payer will say, well, this is my go-to drug. I want you to start with this. And, you know, and there's, we don't really have, we have some head-to-head studies, but, you know, we need to figure out a way to individualize this care. So I guess my message to them would be, and I know that, you know, from a payer perspective, it may be hard to say, you know, let's trust the doctor. But I would say, you know, I'm sitting in front of the patient. I know a lot of the details about this specific patient. I know how often they can come in. I know about their socioeconomic status. I know the family members that are there. And to set this protocol where I have to do step after step after step with something that I don't necessarily believe is going to work for this particular patient, be it, I don't know, their hemoglobin A1C is way out of control. And so, uh, you know, this, and you have to remember that a lot of the studies that we have don't allow patients that have had, you know, their, um, their hemoglobin A1C is out of control. So what we see in medicine is that we have these studies, but sometimes the study results don't translate into the real world in real patients because they're not tightly controlled and they're not as compliant as our study patients are. So in some ways, we have to figure out a way to work together, payer and doctor, to uh, trust the doctor to do what's best for the patient um, based on the individual that he's seeing or she's seeing in front of them. Those are great comments. I think collaboration and conversation actually allow us to get past some of these artificial barriers. Healthcare is obviously super complicated and it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have to look at cost uh, and it's becoming more and more important just because of all of the super expensive, especially medications that are coming out and the pressure it's putting on employers and payers. But sometimes we can be our own worst enemy and we, we overcomplicate this. And so you know, multiple steps, maybe it's not the best approach here. So we do need to look at, at the science and, and what's best and look at the big picture while not dismissing cost, but there's there's got to be a better way to do this. So Dr. Davis, I would like to uh, thank you very much for all of your great comments today. And now we are going to open the discussion up to our audience for some questions.
So let's take a look. And again, if you have any questions for us, please use the uh, Q&A button on your screen. We've had some questions come in. So I'll just dive right into this, Dr. Davis. Okay, great. So again, how would you rank the barriers? We, we've kind of talked about barriers here. So the question is uh, around treatment hesitancy. So maybe that's needles or mm -hmm. lifestyle modifications. What What are, again, how would you rank the biggest barriers in your experience to getting patients on the right drug? That's the biggest barriers to getting the patient on the right drug. I don't know. Is it okay to say it's the payer? Sure. <laughs> I, Absolutely. I, mean, I think that, you know, trying to figure out which payer wants which drug is very, it's, it's a barrier because I can't just use the drug that I think may work best in this patient. Or, and also I can't, you know, create efficiencies where maybe I use one drug more than the other because, you know, there are less drugs to stock or things like that. Um, because, you know, a lot of these drugs, because there's a buy and bill program, like we buy the drugs and then we have to bill the payer in order to get the medicine back. When there is a discrepancy in that, like the payer says, hey, you know, I don't, you know, the diagnosis isn't covered, though, again, we try to avoid all of that. But if there's any reason that the payer says, hey, I, I can't reimburse you for this drug, then the income that the doctor makes on that individual drug, it takes, is very small, and it takes 10 injections uh, in order to make up for the loss of just one unpaid for drug. And so a lot of that's driving, for some of the expensive ones, and a lot of that is driving decision-making. Um, and and I know payers may say, well, that's great. We want to drive decision-making. But the problem is you're then tying the physician's hands when it comes to using some of these drugs that will last longer. And so, and you're also having some um, physicians say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to keep using the monthly injections that are inexpensive, even though they're not the best for the patient. And by best for the patient, I mean, you know, decrease of injections, increase in efficacy, those are the things that I look for when I'm treating patients. Because ideally, I say, I would like to give you one injection that's going to last a year or 30 months. And then I'm just following you instead of injecting you every month. The problem is that medicine is expensive. And so therefore, you know, and, and again, it's not, you know, we all have our motivations. But for me, my motivation, I tell patients all the time especially diabetic patients. I'm like, look, we know if you control your disease process, you know, you won't have problems and you won't have to come see me. And I'm like, you won't hurt my feelings. Like, please put me out of business. I'll figure something else out to do. There's other disease processes that I could take because it hurts me to watch you go blind from noncompliance. And it also hurts me as a physician, honestly, to not be able to use the medicine that I think is best for the patient um, because the payer is driving that. So that's one of the, um, that's one of the barriers. And also they say, okay, well, hey, you can do these peer to peers and, you know, present your case. But we've talked about the burden on the healthcare system and numbers and how many patients we see and how much time we have to spend with the patients. Um, honestly, I don't have time to do 
peer-to-peers every time I want to use a medicine that I think will be best for this patient. So we really have to kind of sort that out. So that that's that's those are I so I think the payer is one of the biggest barriers in terms of getting the patient necessarily the drug that I want. Um, usually patients are pretty compliant. Um, they trust their doctors. They also they have choice, so they can choose which doctors to go to, and so um, they go to doctors that they trust and ones that are going to do the best for them and have their best interests at heart. Um, and also, you know, and it's just the nature of the treatments right now, like you know, and the. But I always tell patients again, just to be patient. I mean, you know, there are times where you had a disease where twenty years ago when I started. I would say, well, you know, um, it's a good thing you have another eye. We don't really have a good treatment for this eye. Now I can say, hey, look, I can make your vision better and we can maintain this vision. And we started off with these monthly injections. That's what was shown to be best. And now we're trying to push that out and we're finding some success with that. So a lot of the newer drugs are every four months. So um, so that also decreases the patient's treatment burden. And so that barrier gets improved. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, so we've had some questions around uh, reimbursement and coverage. I think you've done an excellent job of answering those. So I'm going to try to combine a few of the questions that have come in together and ask you one last question. And it's around what I would call social determinants of health. And you alluded to this a few minutes ago when you talked about transportation issues and access, but there are other things uh, like education and awareness, all, all kinds of things that would that I would lump under social determinants of health. So how much of a factor is that when you and your colleagues are managing patients with retinal diseases? Oh, I mean, socioeconomic factors are extremely important. I mean, just like everything in healthcare, sadly, the better your socioeconomic status, just the more you understand about the disease process, the more some of the targeted campaigns to get you to understand more about the disease um, hit you. And, you know, and, and we don't, as a medical community, do a great job of reaching out to make sure that some of our underserved patient populations, we have to remember that, you know, as payers, we know that we have Medicaid for people that are that are um that you know may not have as many means as others however these medicaid patients then become medicare patients and it's sometimes once they turn 65 of course but they still have their socioeconomic challenges that they had when they were on medicaid they still you know have lower income it's they still have less access to transportation to the doctor they're still you know, working jobs that require a lot of time without as much compensation. So getting off from work can be a problem. We have to remember with diabetes, you know, it's the leading cause of blindness in the working age population. And so these are patients that are contributing to our society, helping us in, in ways, but, you know, they still don't have as much access as we would like. Um, in fact, I'm working with another, you know, some of a company and some other colleagues on an advisory board to try to develop some strategies and think about ways that we can make sure that the people with certain social economic concerns can have access to two different drugs. And, and the question then becomes, honestly, you know, because 
with all of these systems, with all of our payer systems, the patient has a personal responsibility to pay a part of their treatment. You know, it, it becomes a problem sometimes in using some of the drugs that will last longer, because as I mentioned earlier, some of the drugs that last longer cost more. And it's just the nature of the fact that they are, that they last longer. So they, I mean, they're not like, they don't cost as many times as they last longer. You know what I mean? So if like, if a drug will last two months and then you have another drug that will last four months, it's not like the second drug is twice as expensive as the first one, but it is significant and that affects the patients as we know. So yeah, so those are, those are, are very important to the, to the care of patients. Transportation, I would say, having people who can support you, um, which again, it's easier when, you know, the, in some of the higher socioeconomic statuses, you have people that aren't working and have more time sometimes, so, or have more flexible jobs where they can take off. So those make a, those make a big difference and we see it. We see it all the time. Um, you know, I have some patients that will neglect their healthcare even though they have access, even though they have transportation, but they have demands on their job that they can't, that they refuse to take off because, um, you know, just because they're afraid of losing that income. Perfect. Uh, I appreciate that. I wish we had more time to continue this conversation, but unfortunately we do need to conclude the podcast, but I would like to thank you for all of the great insight. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, once again, I would like to thank Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated for their support of this educational activity. And to, again, claim credit for this activity, please click on the complete evaluation link within the activity. Once you complete the evaluation, be sure to click claim credit to receive your certificate. And then again, for pharmacists to submit to the CPE monitor. So this concludes today's podcast. Thank you very much for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day.